Listener Production. Libby Gore, thank you for submitting to this involuntary interrogation. It's um, it's absolutely my pleasure. Trust no one. The level of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser-unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites. Treason. Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser. The Chaser. Domi. I've brought in somebody who really deserves a grilling today. Now, this is a performer who, under the stage name of Elle McFeast, once made many acclaimed comedy shows while desecrating the name of the most beloved corporation in the world, McDonald's. No, that's sacrilege. It's appalling. Now, not only that, of course, I chills my blood to say this, but she spent many years as an ABC radio presenter. Ugh, there's nothing worse than someone from comedy who becomes an earnest ABC radio presenter. I could not agree with you more about this, Dommy. It is time to make Elle McFeast grimace. Libby, um, tell us about where you grew up. Where I grew up? Where I grew up? Wait, is that, why, is, why is that so outrageous? Well, this I is an interrogation, just, Libby. could just lie down on the couch. Ca- We're looking for a of pattern I... of criminality that dates oh, back Marumbina. to your Marumbina. earliest... What's that? Murrumbina 3163. It is uh, a suburb that is home to Daryl Braithwaite, Bob Down, Robbie Flower, the great uh, Melbourne footballer, the late Robbie Flower. In fact, I even think This Is Serious Mum played their first gig at the Duncan McKinnon Reserve which is somewhere around near Murrumbina. Mm. And so Murrumbina, when I was growing up, was not quite Caulfield. But now, Murrumbina, <laughs> hey, you don't want to be in Carnegie. Right. And a lot it of people from Murrumbina uh, go into showbiz with pseudonyms, don't they? I mean, Bob Down, mm. Tism. Daryl Braithwaite. Daryl Braithwaite, yes. <laughs> and of what's course, his, what's his real name? What, what's Daryl Braithwaite's real name? Braithwaite Daryl. Ah. Right. What is it about uh, Murrumbina that makes people want to assume different identities? Well, I think when you take on a different identity in the 70s in Melbourne, although they were all a little bit older than me in the 60s, it's a very good question. It was possibly safer. It was possibly safer. I think we grew up in a time of assumed identities, didn't we? I mean, there was Elton John. There was... Oh, yeah. Who else was Madonna. there? Madonna. Madon- no, no, that was That's her a real, real name. name. Oh, She really? dropped her surname. Well, that's an assumed identity. If, you, if you're dropping your surname, that's a bit sus. Don Lane. Now, that wasn't his real name. Was it, it really wasn't. not? No, it was something like Morton Isaacson or something. Now, I think Bert Newton, was, that was his real name. You wouldn't change your and name th- to Bert Newton, surely. No, I don't think you would. I think that was it. <laughs> Marist Brothers, Fitzroy. Like, they're all the names I grew up with when I was little. All blokey names. What was the worst thing you did as a child? Because currently... Uh, and we've got the records here, mm. and there's not a lot of detail. I mean, obviously, the notoriety, the notoriety comes later. Mm. But, uh, yeah, not much. Was it really well, that boring? I mean, well, it was Melbourne. It was Melbourne. And, in actual fact, there was a lot of sitting on the front step, uh, 
listening to the footy on long Saturday afternoons. Because when I grew up in Melbourne uh, in the 70s, it was the time just on the cusp of Sherbet v Skyhooks. It was just on the cusp of Collingwood winning its very first wooden spoon on the AFL ladder. They still had the McIntyre system, which was a final five in football. There were only 12 teams. It was the VFL, not the AFL. And if you're talking about childhood, the worst thing I did in childhood, it was possibly get expelled from Sunday school. Now we're now, talking. Now, Ooh. okay. Now you've Ooh. pressed the button. Expelled now I, from yeah. Sunday. That's not even possible, it, I didn't think. I did. I did. <laughs> because I'm a great one in social justice. I'm, I've always been a believer in social justice. So hang on. How do you spin Sunday school as social justice? What's the Well, it there? wasn't. That's the whole point. It just wasn't. I felt there was propaganda that was being peddled at Sunday school and I called them on it at eight years of age. Well, I have to say the rabbi wasn't unimpressed. He liked my theological reasoning. He thought I could actually have a future as a Talmudic scholar. But uh, Miss Duffield wasn't as happy. She didn't like me standing up before her and saying, standing up in front of you is like throwing Daniel into the lion's den. I had a great divinity knowledge because I went to an Anglican girls' school as a little Jewish girl in Melbourne. So I always say now that I am a... um, a, a Jewish Australian woman with an Anglican rising and a Methodist moon because, you know, I've got passports all areas. And that's basically what my little confused, um, theologically mixed up and assimilated, football-oriented, sherbet-doused childhood created a little girl who thought, I don't want to be called Libby. It's the daggiest name in the world. Why can't I just be Debbie like everyone else? And um, <laughs> so I made up, you know, that, that's, that's who you have now sitting in front of you as a fully formed grown-up lady. Well, I th- this is a conundrum for, for religious freedom, what you've just, but, just described. You're, mm. you're a bizarre religious salad, aren't you? I am. I am indeed a very fruity religious salad. Well, I think we'll have mm. to consult Christian Porter on this one, Andrew. I mean, if, mm. you've, if you're part of all of these religions, does that mm. mean you just get to say whatever you want because it must be somehow connected to one of your religions somewhere? Yes, and I also think that I can actually define myself in whichever way I want, which is that communist leaning coming out that always comes from a private school education in Melbourne. You know, that little <laughs> progressive communist yes, leading that yes. only people with money can give you. Mm. Uh, I, I do define myself as a fruit salad. It's very impressive that your rebellion against religion took the form of uh, religious references, though. Well, thank you. I I always say the New Testament is just a further draft of the old. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you think that there's lots in the Bible? (laughs) I can't believe you do. Don't you think there's lots in the Bible that is just like the basis of ethics? Hmm. Don't you think? Well, uh, ooh, look, uh, uh, this is this sounds like scandalous talk to me. Give an, what's an example? Look. Well, for instance, when Abraham put Isaac on the altar <clears throat> to teach Abraham a lesson, ah, when God asked Abraham to put Isaac on the altar to teach Abraham a lesson about who's the boss, he didn't actually go through with it. They looked at the story. They thought, mm, can we make a franchise out of this movie? No. In the second draft... They nailed him up. They did it. Yeah. Better story. Better outcome. Died. Yeah. Rose again. Took over the world. See? 
Oh, so you think you think that the New Testament is um, is Empire Strikes Back? Yeah, I do. I think I think the mm. I think the Old Testament is the prequel. Oh, and I ooh, think, harsh, yeah. harsh. It's not you're not talking Phantom Menace territory. Is Jar Jar Binks in the Old Testament? I was sort of thinking more. I don't know, Home Alone one. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> well, that's the finest of the Home Alone series in my the view. Least worst. The, yeah, I think Rocky also has divinical oh. implications. Rocky, explain. Well, Rocky one. You know, if that's just not about self-respect and resilience, I don't mm. know what it is. It's certainly true yeah. that Rocky as a franchise refuses to die. It seems to be immortal. <laughs> it does. And not only that, it spawns off into, I mean, look, now we've got Creed, another family yeah. tree, which I don't know yeah. whether that would be any good if Rocky wasn't in it, but, because, you know, mm. you need Rocky sitting there talking to Adrian at the... You want to see Rocky, don't you? He's he's kind of, because he's like the the Yoda of the Star, Mm. you know, he's in Star Wars. You've got to have just just wizened by now. (laughs) And yeah, and and even older looking. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. He's not older looking. He's had a lift. So look. Yeah, actually, mysteriously younger looking than he was a a couple of movies ago. Yes. Particularly in the the TV series, (laughs) anyway. Um, Now, Libby, you were talking about listening to the footy on the stairs. Is Mm. that where your love of sport, that's been a big part of your career, is that that where that began? Um, well, my love of sport was infused into it because I was sport. I had two older brothers, right? So being a, the third child with a family of two older brothers, there was always sport to be had even if one was the subject of that, you know, being thrown around or... So you found yourself being incorporated into the games, like it or not? Or I was the game, for instance. Oh, right. You know, one of my brothers. Yeah, oh, I was a football. I weren't so much into football. What would you call? One of my brothers used to sit on me and um, tickle me and lick my face until I wet my pants. Is that? That's not really football, is it? That's something. No, I think that's kind of, oh. generally re- abuse. Is what? Um, that's <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> certainly what. When when I tried doing that here at Border Force, that's what the Internal Affairs uh, report said it was abuse. Yeah. Do I need to call my lawyer? Definitely. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in these techniques. I mean, this this sitting on people and, and face licking. Um, let's Until let's, they wet their pants. Yeah, I, th- I think this could be useful to, in the department. Let's Excellent. have a word about this. I'm pretty sure, Andrew, that Minister Dutton uh, pioneered these techniques when he was in the Queensland Police. But it shows potential. I mean, maybe other members of the family could be brought on board. Oh, Hello. I mean, look, Libby, just to reveal what's going on here. I know yeah, you're a smart I'm, person. I'm s- s- slightly confused. I think you've with a buzz saw. I think you've probably figured out what this is all about, though. And you know, in your heart of hearts, that we are trying to uh, gradually win over all of the beloved performers of Australia to the cause of uh, Border Force and the AFP. Of course. Uh, in some cases, as, as sort of avert agents, in some cases, as, sli- as sleeper agents. Mm-hmm. Um, we are here to essentially co-opt and corrupt you. Mm-hmm. We're always looking for more interrogators. And, and uh, Libby, mm. you've interviewed so many people over the years in, in so many different forms. But le- let's get to your comedy career. How did you go from all this this uh, multi-religion childhood to the world of comedy? Well, I think that's exactly how I went from... <laughs> I think that is exactly, sir, how I how I made the transition into comedy because one needed to make sense of it somehow. All those different little Jungian influences needed to bubble to the surface and make sense in some sort of joy, sir. 
And what was the first time you found yourself actually performing? Um, probably in Alice in Wonderland. Oh, no, actually it was singing Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head at the Cuckoo Restaurant up in... The Cuckoo Restaurant is in... It's for Alinda. It's a cuckoo restaurant? The cuckoo restaurant. What do you, what do you eat cuckoos in this restaurant? You eat cuckoos, correct. Ooh. was actually run by a, a, a couple from a Germanic background and they called it the cuckoo restaurant and they had lots of cockatiels there and it was one of those places that you went for a visit on a <laughs> Sunday afternoon and you had lunch there and there was a band and I sang Raindrops Keep Falling on Your Head over and over and over again. I only knew the first bit. And they rewarded me with... A soggy handful of after dinner mints in a paper serviette, the, and I was hooked. That was I it. was hooked. Did you have a pleasant <laughs> singing voice, or were they just being kind? I think they were just being kind. Now, much later, the man who ran the cuckoo disappeared in one of Melbourne's fabulous mm. underbelly murders. Oh, yeah. But I don't think that has anything. Oh, maybe that is the complete round circle of my entertainment career. <laughs> I'm yet to see the uh, Underbelly series, including you, but I mean, I assume El- every Melbourneian will eventually feature somewhere in, in an Underbelly. Every, everyone will. There's the shady figures, you know, kind of woven throughout your entire career, aren't there, Libby, which, which interests me. Which shady figures, Andrew, are you talking about? <laughs> well, well, I mean... Uh, Mr. Reith. You know, I mean, you're kind of well known for interviewing a, a, a certain shady personage, the name of Chopper Reed, which I think is interesting from, you know, from our... Well, he was in Underbelly. And he was in Underbelly. Mm. Mm. He was Underbelly. Part yeah. of it. Part of it. I <laughs> but I also interviewed Mr Keating. And Would you say that he was a shady figure? Well. KD Lang? Katie Lang. Katie Lang isn't shady enough. No, look, Paul Keating, given who we currently work for, very shady. Very shady. Slightly shady. Yeah. Look, Paul Keating got a bit shady with the Queen. Oh, how, how, was, how, was, how was Paul Keating to interview? Oh, oh, he was one of my favourites. It was like playing was netball he? with Mr Keating. Yes, because he had all these guards around him. So I always felt like I was wing defence trying to come in contact with wing attack and he'd just get the other defenders in between us and wave as he wandered through. Yeah. How do you break through with a, with a Paul Keating? How do you, do you try and throw him off edge? Do you throw him off balance? Um... I think the first time I interviewed Paul Keating, I did do that. And then from then on, he was careful. So, so you know what happened with Paul Keating? Tell us. It was, it was a room full of men in grey suits at a Collingwood football club lunch. And I was wearing a red dress. Eddie Maguire was hosting in a grey suit. Of course. And people were asking questions of Paul Keating. And I was working for Live and Sweaty for Andrew Denton, as you have in those days. We'll get to that, yes. And he was trying to get Paul Keating to go and bowl with him for Live and Sweaty. And I was the one who had access in Melbourne as the Melbourne reporter for Live and Sweaty. So my job, my mission, gentlemen, for that day, this is to show how brave I can be in my red dress with the cutout bit around the decolletage, which was my Spice Girls feminism, was to ask Mr Keating to bowl. And so... I put my hand up for the microphone, given Eddie was taking questions from the floor. And to his credit, Eddie gave me the microphone. And then I walked through a thousand men in their grey suits, singing to Paul Keating, 
and got up next to him on stage and he was completely nonplussed and he put his arm around my back and my exact words, gentlemen, were, oh, you've got your hand on my back like you did with the Queen. Yeah. And <laughs> Nicely then I done. Said, Very nice. And then I said, and did she do this? And I leant forward and, you know, went to... Lick his face and see if he'd laugh until he. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a good. And there's a pattern of this, isn't it? It's a good technique. Good yeah. technique. Yeah. And that was that. We were <laughs> lifelong friends, uh, but I didn't get close to him. <laughs> I didn't get close to him afterwards unless there was a lot of security. Oh, so, I see. Know, he was. He didn't want to be licked again. He didn't get, want more. Well, no, he didn't want no, and he wasn't licked again until '96, really. <laughs> and, That's and, true. And, uh, <laughs> And that had nothing to do with me. That had to do with putting on that funny hat when he went to the Chogham or something, you know. Once they start putting on oh, funny hats, oh, yes. it's, all it's over. a vulnerability. It's game over, isn't yep. it? And um, look, this is this is also some, a good reason why our uh, our boss, Peter Dutton, looks the way he does because mm. you wouldn't put a funny hat on that or you would look, you'd, you'd have real problems. I mean, he you looks would. a bit like an ice cream that's been licked a few times too many, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he does. <laughs> And how did the, the character of El McFeast fit into all this? Was it liberating to, to have that? Well, the character of El McFeast gave me a context. So it gave me its social activism, if you know what I mean. Like, for instance, the way the whole name came up was when I was in the Hot Bagels and we were doing Comedy Festival and we were asked to do ads for the Comedy Festival, the guys at Flint Webster who were making all the Comedy Festival ads said, oh, you've got a nice tone in your voice. Would you like to come and do some voiceovers? Which I thought was a different way of putting oneself through uni rather than working at Dracula's or Red Rooster, right? (laughs) So the one that I auditioned for, they held up a picture, true story, they held up a picture of Elle McPherson and they said, do you think you can sound like that? Sound like that. Sound like that. Now I have made an entire career out of being (laughs) fat shamed and looks shamed, you know, Um, not having a conventional celebrity body or face and I looked at this skinny beautiful picture of Elle McPherson because she was it at the time she did the tab cola ad she was on the cover of Sports Illustrated she wore togs that just crawled up the crack of her bottom and were just delighted to be there (laughs) and and I looked at this picture of Elle McPherson and I said "Uh, can I sound like that I don't know how do you sound hungry (laughs) from there but that's true. And from there, El McFeast was born because I was performing in pubs uh, after constitutional law lectures with the bagels up at the Prince Patrick in Collingwood. And, you know, we'd stop for Euros or McDonald's on the way home. So it was my way of saying there are other ways of a woman being valued in society than being that form of beauty. Why can't the rest of us have some agency? And so you were asking me about footy and being mad on sport before. It wasn't so much that football um, made me mad on sport, but what growing up in Melbourne in the 70s did was, with that huge football culture around, it showed me, even though I was being taught by teachers who were second wave feminists, if you think about it, they were all at a private girls' school and they'd all read Germaine Greer and they were all thinking, well, it I'll do the best I can for me, but these girls need to know that everything's possible. So that's what we were being told. Mm. But when I looked around me at the structures of power and influence, even though I didn't understand that that's what I was doing at the time, it was all through footy. All of the influential people in Melbourne were either footballers or presidents of football clubs or involved in power and influence, and they were all male. 
And how so interesting. The interesting thing for me was how do you find your way through that so that you can have all the things that we're being told at school that we're entitled to, which is equal rights, equal pay, equal opportunity, all of those sorts of things. And that little seven-year-old brain said, oh, well, I need to play football. Well, so I played football in a different way, you know, kicked a few balls, took a few marks, did a few speckies, all of those sorts of things. And that's why it was like this complete blowout for me when actually women did start playing football a few years ago and that I was actually part of that. I found that incredibly emotional because that's basically where my drive came from. Does that make sense or do I need to lead down and get oh, a no, that's, that's evaluation? Um, do, you think, that's, do you know, like, is that going to rule me out for having that kind of influence, that kind of... Well, look, if you're used to um, youthful feminist drive, if you're used to pushing your way through a room full of men, welcome to Border Force. Yes, well, Mm. I do have those skills. Although now that I'm older and not, you know, and have my own children, I think part of that skill is being seen by those men as possible prey or, you know, as one says in the books, fuckable. And when you're older and you've already got your children, that kind of goes out. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that they see you through that lens. So one of your mm. armories is taken from you, <clears throat> even it, if you never delivered. Now, as, as people who've just worked um, for a few years in commercial radio, how on earth did McDonald's not sue you for using McFeast? I mean, we, we mentioned McDonald's even passingly and uh, we get in huge I trouble. Think it was, I actually think it was long user, to tell you the truth. And I did take out a patent in other areas apart from hamburgers. Oh, did, did you? you? Yes. Does that still stand? You still own the McFeast name? No, I don't think I did. I, I, I think I let it lapse, but we did take out, yeah. That's well, brilliant. So they had the burger sense, but you It was had only a problem when stuff. Hungry Jacks came to me. <laughs> it was only a problem. You're making this up. No, no, no. I mean, that was the whole thing was like for me to be at the end of the tag of the Hungry Jacks commercial with the burgers are better at Hungry Jacks. Oh, Jacks. I didn't do uh, that. Didn't you? That would have been biting the hand that fed, wouldn't it? Mm. And the ABC, I mostly see. the ABC because one couldn't do ads when one Well, actually, that's the other thing. I mean, um, I remember the, the, the chaser got in one. trouble for doing stunts in McDonald's because there were so many. It's such a good place to do stunts. And there were so many that at one point they said, look, to be honest, too much promotion of, um, of McDonald's, even though you're making fun of them. So for you to have a character called Elle McFeast on the ABC for years, that's amazing you were allowed to do. That's brilliant. Yeah, it was. It was well, things were it was it was joyous. It was joyous. There oh. was absolutely no other word to describe it. We had a ball. And I am sure, both of you, gentlemen, that uh, if we looked back through the Me Too lens, we would say, Oh my goodness, did you do, guys do did you all do this and did you all do that? And did this happen and did that happen? I can't rewrite history and say that I would want to have wanted things to have happened um, any other way than they did. I, I learnt so much from, I mean, TV's predominantly, at that stage, was predominantly male, older male. All the legends were male. There was a, an uprising group of women at the ABC in Sydney who called themselves Network 99, you know, oh. after 86 and 99. Oh, yeah. mm. And so they were trying to, that was at the beginning of the female inclusion push at the ABC. David Hill was my managing director. Mm. And, you know, he was fun and we ended up in Woman's Day engaged. 
Yes, because I was going uh-huh. to be Libby Gore Hill. That's right. <laughs> and, the, and the ABC was at Gore Hill and I was Libby Gore and he was David Hill. So, you know, like it was fun. We had fun and we did good work and they did support me. What I learned when it was finished, though, gentlemen, was that the only way that I probably entertained such power because at that stage in the 90s, like a decade of it, of Tonight Shows and things, it's pretty... But it was because I had the support of those men, you know. It was because I entertained that support from those men. And it wasn't just power in my own right. When that support was taken away, then then I was just like the next girl. It's interesting, isn't With it? With an executive putting his arm around me and patting me and me thinking, how dare you? Oh, really? That yeah. happened? Oh, yeah. Mm. But it, it's yeah. what you're saying is... He died. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I didn't do it, <laughs> but he ran into my knife ten times. No, 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 no. Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting what you said in the entertainment industry more broadly is that it's true. I mean, these gatekeepers who no one knows about can make and unmake careers. And I guess these days we see people trying to do things themselves directly with through YouTube or um, Instagram or whatever it is and trying to cut out the, the middle men who are always men. Do you think that that's changed in comedy, the way that people connect well, with their audiences? I don't think they're all, all middle men anymore. I mean, not not at the ABC. There are lots of women in really yeah, that's true. Um, the ABC, powerful that's true. positions. Mm. Um, and I think in daytime television and uh, morning television, there are lots of women producers. There are lots more women in decision-making roles. Yeah, um, sorry, no, that's absolutely true. I, 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 but what I, don't I really necessarily... meant to say the decision-makers more broadly getting well, in the way. Well, everyone's got much more agency. If you've got the drive and you've got a mobile phone and you can get onto YouTube, you can get your stuff out there, can't you? You know, and a cream pie to whack in your brother's face. (laughs) I saw on YouTube this morning. Sorry, gentlemen, am I derailing the interview? Well, this always always happens with you. (laughs) Do you know the biggest YouTube channel that there is? It's the one that my daughter watches and your daughter might watch, sir. It's the one where the kid unwraps toys. Oh, Evan oh, It's just watching another child unwrapping <laughs> presents. Yeah. Do you, do you understand the appeal of these uh, unboxing videos? Because it could be something that we could tap into, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking uh, you know, PR perspective. Could definitely do some unwrapping and unboxing videos. Well, it's, you know, of all the stuff we've seized uh, at the border, yes. we, could, we could unbox them. Instead of it being a drama like they do on border security, on commercial television, we could actually get into a budget surplus if we actually took the drugs and the weapons and the um, mud crabs and all of those things that people are trying mm. to import or sausages, export, sausages fish meats, products, yes, and we unwrapped them mm. on YouTube. It would be huge. It would be fantastic. I can see that being huge. A revenue raiser, millions we could bring in. The sort of Libby. Chinese, you know, pressure-packed fish unboxing yes, at, um, at the border. Yes, and so Yes, on. yes. Mm. The rhino horns. It would be perfect. And maybe I could be your creative director. And, oh God, this I could be brilliant. Julie, the cruise director. It sounds great. The, on one of the big boats that we need to turn back. <laughs> Libby, welcome to, welcome to Border <laughs> Force, Libby. Thank Gore. you. Yes, this I, sounds amazing. It's much better to just, you know go in with a joyful heart and an open mind rather than trying to resist. Better to be on the inside than the out, right? I think but between licking detainees <laughs> and uh, doing mm. a YouTube uh, contraband channel, uh, it's amazing we haven't recruited you before. We got there. Welcome. Thanks. Where's my room? Extreme Vetting with the Chaser was written and presented by Dom Knight, Charles Firth and Andrew Hansen. 
produced by Alex Mitchell and audio production by Darcy Thompson. For all episodes, search Extreme Vetting Podcast. Listener.